0: Heavenly Father, I pray you give me grace as I expound upon the life of Timothy, which is really the story of how you prepared this man to be all that he became. Give us grace as we celebrate the work that you did in him, the way that you formed him spiritually, all the individuals involved who established a foundation for him in your word, For the people that were in his life that gave him a visceral understanding of what it meant to follow his Lord Jesus. And in particular, Paul. I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for your spirit who imparts these things to us. And we pray for such an impartation today. Father, we are always mindful of the unbelievers in our midst who come week in and week out. We pray that you would save them even today, and we pray that the saints here would continue to be sanctified, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, If you work in the corporate world or the private sector or even the public sector, then you know that personnel development is one of any growing organization's prime directives, and that's because personnel, people, are the most important resource that a company or an organization has. If they want to grow, growth requires qualified, equipped individuals. And management, when they hire, they hire with this in mind. And then after they have hired people, they continue to observe them. What they're looking for is character, work ethic, leadership potential, that person's quality of work, and the list goes on. And if a person does exhibit raw potential then an organization will spend a lot of money and a lot of time developing that potential, recognizing that that investment is well worth it if they gain a competent contributor to that uh, business or whatever it is well into the future. Now, Christianity is not a corporation. It sure isn't a government agency. It isn't to be run like either of those things, and in fact, the attempt to run it like this has run Big Eva right into the ground. as a devastating consequences. But we do share this in common with secular organizations and industry. We recognize with them gifts, abilities, we cultivate character and skills. But we do this in the members of Christ's body in keeping with the process given in his word. And today we will see how Christ through human hands trained one of his great servants, and that is Timothy of 1st and 2nd Timothy. And the lesson today taught through this man's testimony is how God makes ministers. That's the big point that we're driving at. And this lesson is critical. For every church, for this church, as I assume we want to see men brought up into the ministry through our ministry here. And this lesson, as well as much more, is given to us in Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. We will also consider corollary passages, though, as well, which I'll give you as we go. Now, soon we're going to read our primary text together. First, though, let me remind you of where we are in our progression through this book, as you will soon see. We are still relatively close to the events of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15.36. We learn that some days had transpired since the Council. At that point, I told you that was probably months or maybe a year. You'll see in the context in our study today that even now we have not moved very far beyond that because the effects of it are still lingering and that is still defining the nature of Paul's ministry. We also, though, just learned that one of the greatest missionary duos ever assembled, Dissolved, over what I termed irreconcilable differences that pertain to the inclusion or exclusion of one John Mark. Barnabas could not abide simply setting him aside and saying, you're done, you're disqualified from ministry, and Paul, considering the ministry to be a far greater consequence than uh, a man like John Mark should be involved in, excluded him. And these men could not come to terms with each other. They could not reconcile over this. And so uh, Barnabas takes John Mark. Paul takes Silas. And Silas had been assigned to the group by the Jerusalem Council. So now he continues on with Paul. And through all of this, the truth kept marching on. To paraphrase from the Battle Hymn of the Republic... The mission of strengthening the churches with the truth from Acts 15, verse 41, was unhindered, and in fact, it ended up being aided by the addition of more missionaries, Silas again being one, Timothy will now be another, and with that, we are brought current, so now let us read the text together, and I will expound and apply it, but as indicated, I'm going to go further than what occurs in the text only because my thesis for today is is not best proved by Timothy's example in Acts 16 alone, but by the whole of what is written of him. And so I'll bring in that additional material to that end as well. And the way that we're going to handle this is to start here first with our text. And we will use this to set a foundation for our study. Then we will go backwards, and we will consider Timothy's spiritual formation as a child. Then we'll bring our consideration current back to the text. Then we will also consider... Timothy's life and ministry after the events of our text. And once we have accomplished all of this, we will zero in on Paul's investment in him in order to understand what that investment constituted and what our investment in young men must therefore constitute as well. So to our primary text, Acts 16, 1 through 5. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. So we'll start here first with the fact that Timothy is a half-breed, and we'll seek to understand what that meant for him. Technically, this means that Timothy has an advantage over pure Gentiles as it pertains to the Jews, because he's half-Jewish. And even more helpful for him in this respect is the fact that Timothy's mother was a Jew, because Judaism was considered to be passed what's called matrilineally in that day, and it's actually the same in our day, in the most conservative circles of orthodox Judaism. And the, the reason in ancient times for this is pretty obvious if you think about it. You can't prove paternity in the same way that you can prove maternity because there were witnesses there that saw that child pass from the womb, whereas uh, who a person's father is is a little bit more of a tricky matter. But because he is a Jew, Timothy is technically legally a Jew, rather because his mother is a Jew. He's legally a Jew. Practically, though, he still would not have been considered as existing on the same level as other Jews, and that is true for a number of reasons. The Jews tended to look sideways at people who were mixed, because this often brought less than orthodox takes on their religion. You can think about the Samaritans, who had imported a lot of stuff and exported a lot of stuff as well. But for this reason, they certainly would have been naturally skeptical of Timothy, and in fact. In his case, they wouldn't have been altogether wrong if they were. Because Timothy was, in fact, compromised, though not in the same way as the Samaritans, he would have been considered by them apostate because that is what an uncircumcised male Jew was. And Timothy was a Jew that was born into the Old Covenant. So there's no way around that. The Old Covenant, Mosaic law, did not suggest circumcision. It required it. And yet we know from our text that he wasn't. And to be fair, maybe his mother wanted him to be, but his father being a Greek wouldn't permit it. We're not told that. However, we may assume that on account of the fact that Timothy's mother married a Gentile at all, she was not herself exactly the most orthodox practitioner of the Jewish faith, not at least at all points in her faith or in her life. So all this to say that Timothy from a young age was, according to how people think about these things, disadvantaged as a minister of the gospel. He is from the wrong side of the tracks. On paper, it's not looking good for him. He can't make the kind of boast that Paul makes in, for example, Philippians 3, circumcised on the eighth day, educated in these ways. That sort of thing has no parallel in this man's life. However, there is a great equalizer in the Christian faith. There exists for us an instrument which, if imparted to us and imbibed by us, can render the seemingly unfit fit, and the actually unfit fit, and it is sincere faith built upon the Word of God, and that was the greatest gift ever given to young Timothy, and it was first given to him by God through his mother and his grandmother, who are named and attested to in Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul says to Timothy there, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am sure that it is in you as well. Now, faith in Yahweh obviously does not exist apart from his word. Therefore, clearly, what Lois and Eunice gave little Timothy was the milk of the word. And as I thought about this, I thought, you know, it's interesting that Paul, as he says in Romans 15, doesn't want to build upon any other man's foundation when it comes to a ministry, generally He wants to be the first one to break ground, and yet in discipling Timothy, he is in fact building upon a foundation laid by two women. And of course, there's no contradiction here because Paul never objected to personally discipling somebody who'd been contributed to by another at a previous point because that's the way this works, always. We have all been touched by many hands from many saints. Therefore, Paul is no doubt happy to recognize the magnitude of what Lois and Eunice gave to Timothy, and the undeniable role that they played in his spiritual formation, as he is to recognize that their faith had become his faith, and they had instilled it in him. Therefore, also he acknowledges by implication that the outcome of Timothy's life, i.e., who he became as a minister, owed largely to the way that God used both of these godly ladies. And for this reason, I've always thought that outside of Mary's example with Jesus, a better example could not be found In scripture to encourage Christian mothers than this. In fact, I would actually argue that this is even better of a testimony to that effect than Mary's would be. And that's because while Mary was not sinless, she was exceptional in ways that few women ever have been. That's a fact. And I don't have to be a Roman Catholic to acknowledge it. Whereas Eunice, Eunice was a great mom and she instilled in little Timothy the fundamentals of the faith faithfully. But it's quite evident that Eunice was a flawed man, flawed woman and that her flaws were significant. Eunice was also not born into the new covenant. Therefore, marrying a Greek was a sin. Certainly, marrying a non-proselyte Greek would have been an even greater sin. And we know, reasonably speaking, that her husband, if he was her husband, because we actually don't know even that, we know that he was an unbeliever. Because a proselyte certainly would have had his Jewish son circumcised, whereas Timothy's father did not because he was not a proselyte. And if you were asking my opinion, I'd tell you that I think it's very likely that Eunice rebelled against God for a period of her life, and that as happens in our day and has happened in every day, the rebellion of that period yielded a child, in this case a son, and then at a later point, It would appear that she consecrated herself to God and her son as well with the help of her mother, Lois. But what I can tell you with certainty is that Eunice was at certain points in her life and in major ways no great exemplar of the Jewish faith. And yet, her son became the understudy of the Apostle Paul and a ministry partner to him and eventually the Bishop of Ephesus and ultimately a martyr for our Lord. But now, if I may, I'd like to speak to the ladies in the congregation specifically. And in this, I'm going to give you the closest thing that you will ever get from me to a Mother's Day sermon. I don't do that, but as it occurs in the text, I'm happy to encourage you as much as I can. Let me start here with a question. What should you take away from Eunice and Lois' example as grandmothers and mothers and future mothers for those of you that are? What else would you take except that God's grace is greater far than your failures as mothers? Eunice is a lot like you. Again, you'd call her a great mom, and you wouldn't be wrong in the way that we think about this. She strives to do good for her son clearly, and yet she has fallen short very clearly. And let me ask you as an aside here, ladies. You who have sat through the common Mother's Day sermons that are taught and preached in many other churches, what's the general message Of those sermons. Is it something to the effect of you're total scum, you're never going to amount to anything as a parent, you failed in every way possible? No, because we do that to fathers, typically not mothers. Okay, Mother's Day sermons take on a very different character. They are essentially taught that they along with Mary were immaculately conceived or in a Protestant church they are taught effectively that even if Mary wasn't, they still were. It is all about venerating them, and there is plenty of room to praise our mothers for what they do. Very often this goes too far. Very often it doesn't speak to the heart of the matter. It does provide a kind of comfort in as much as we are comforted by the affirmation of our vanity. Have a lot of self-righteous ladies, and they walk into church that particular Sunday thinking that they are supremely worthy, that they can do no wrong as it pertains to the up. Bringing of their children, and then the preacher says, You're right, and they walk away in that state. But the thing about being comforted from falsehood is that it can't last. Not long after that slobbering sermon, that same woman's going to go home and she's going to be what she is as a woman who's still being sanctified at best. She will at some point demean her husband in front of her children again, which will undercut his authority and undermine his ability to lead them into godliness, which is his mandate from God. Or she will again vent her frustration upon a child who has nothing to do with those frustrations and tear into them even though the kid was just being a kid. Or she will do something that in one of a thousand different ways will undermine the gospel that she has preached over and over and over again, and now she is worse off for having heard that preacher slobber fest than she would have been if she'd have just been told the truth. And this is the truth so beautifully manifest in the testimony of Eunice. That is that while she loves her children, she is sinful. She is a flawed mother and yet, by the grace of God, her children must not become the sum of her sins. If she will instill in them the Word and the Savior of the Word, then she will succeed in the greatest way that a mother can. Ladies, to be clear, we love you. We do also live with you. And besides that, you live with yourselves. And so the deception that you have a a sufficient foundation that you've laid for your children's lives is untenable. But what you cannot do, God can. And God will, if you will deliver that word to them. If you will succeed in pointing them to God through Christ. Teaching them that you are not a woman sufficient to bear up their faith. But there is a man sufficient to do so. And his name is the Lord Jesus. As the me, ladies, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sins. You've sung that. I've sung that. I understand that that applies to your sins as mothers just as it does any other category of sin that 's a comforting message, because it also has the benefit of being true now, to continue to progress through the life of Timothy, for that matter, his mother and his grandmother in their lives, look back to acts fourteen one through seven and we will skim in Iconium. They Paul and Barnabas entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren, verse 5. And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lycaonia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now why is that passage relevant? The region. As stated in our text, Acts sixteen one, Timothy is from Lystra. And as I said when we went through that passage, that's almost certainly when Timothy and mother and grandmother got converted. Now, I previously spoke of their faith, so how does this square with that? Well, prior to that point, this family had a lot of light. They had the Old Testament, they had the Old Covenant, which they had been taught, which testified to the coming of a Messiah, and they responded to the light that they had appropriately. But the full revelation of Christ comes through the preaching of Christ, and that happened in Acts 14, so almost certainly that is when they actually became converted. There's another point, though, that should be noted from Acts 14 as well, and that is that it was in Lystra, again, Timothy's hometown, that God taught Timothy all about the cost of discipleship, and Timothy learned this lesson as well as anybody ever could, having not personally experienced that cost yet. Because whether he saw it or not, uh, he knew about what I'm about to remind you of. Acts 14:19 through 22. Jews came. From Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So when you... Read about Timothy's willingness to enter into the ministry and go with Paul immediately. That sort of puts it into perspective, doesn't it? got to have a lot of faith and the right perspective on this life versus the next life in order to leave with somebody who's experienced that on account of doing what he's calling you now to do with him. Also says something about the faith of his mother. Everybody knows what this means. They know that it will almost certainly mean prison, and as we'll see later for Timothy, it will. And they know that it possibly means death, a martyr's death, and as we will see later for Timothy, it will. He will ultimately die for the gospel, and yet he goes. And to kick it back to you again, ladies, we have no reason to think that Eunice sought to hinder Timothy for serving Christ in this way, even though this was an absolute threat to his life. Because the child born to her was not ultimately hers, and neither is the man that he became or will become. As Samuel was the son of Hannah, but in a far greater way the son of God. As Jesus was the son of Mary, but in a vastly greater way the unique son of God. So Timothy is the son of Eunice second, and a son of God first. And as such, his life belongs to God to live for the gospel and eventually to die for it. And by the way, as a very important aside, Paul does not here just take Timothy as a unilateral exercise of apostolic authority. He takes Timothy in cooperation with and in conjunction with the elders of his local church. 1 Timothy 4.14, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. On this instance, that is a reference to Timothy's pastors, and it was them who commissioned him for ministry, but they did so together with Paul, actually, because it would seem that his hands were there as well. 2 Timothy 1.6, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Again, let me remind you of the big lesson here, and that's how ministers are made. Well, as seen here, ministers are made by Christ through the local Church. Paul shaped Timothy in a profound way. He was his greatest influence, clearly. But clearly, he was not his only influence. Man, Timothy became an ode to his grandmother and his mother and largely to faithful local church pastors unknown to us. And in fact, these pastors are actually alluded to in Acts 16 too. And he, Timothy, was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra, And Iconium. Now, what category of brethren would you be most concerned with when seeking to ascertain the quality of a man's Christian character and spiritual giftings? Probably his pastors, yeah. And so laity are not excluded by brethren, but reasonably speaking, church leaders are certainly included, and I think probably most in view. So moving forward, then Paul takes Timothy with him with a full approval of Timothy's church, and he has him circumcised And this presents, for some reason, I cannot really understand, an issue for certain commentators because they feel that this is a contradiction for Paul or hypocrisy or something like that. When, in fact, nowhere in Scripture are we told that Paul has an issue with circumcision as a general matter. He only has an issue with circumcision when it is used as a means of justifying a man before God. And thus, when it impedes the work of the gospel... He refuses, and he refuses even to allow servants of God to be circumcised under those grounds. Titus is a good example. He doesn't recommend to Titus in Galatians 2 that he should be circumcised because that indeed would be an affront to the gospel because Titus is just a Greek. Whereas Timothy is half Jew, half Greek, and consider the nature of their ministry. They are giving the gospel to Jews. Are those Jews going to give an audience to a man who is uncircumcised in a state of, as they would see it, apostasy? No, they are not. Ergo, verse 3, because the Jews who were in those parts knew that his father was a Greek. They know, so they're not going to sit down with a man unless they can verify the legitimacy of that man standing before God in that way. But these are not believers So to build a bridge for the gospel to unbelievers, absolutely, but not as an affront to it. Also, by the way, this, I think, helps establish yet more of Timothy's sincerity and his commitment because Timothy is not getting circumcised here on the eighth day. Uh, We'll discuss how old he is later, but it's well past that, so I would think this would be kind of a big deal. I want you to consider here, since we are now current in our journey through Timothy's tutelage, what Paul is leading Timothy to do along with Silas, Acts 16, 4 and 5. Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Now, what was the nature of those decrees? Well they were really into two categories they were in the theological and in the practical the practical category though you can think of in terms of how to love how to love your brethren and their brethren were Jewish and the way that they loved them when they fellowshiped with them was to set aside certain liberties that they had as it pertained to eating primarily they were also told not to fornicate But the real issue for the Antioch believers and and other believers primarily was the dietary laws. As Christians, they would have, for the most part, understood not to fornicate, and certainly Paul was helping to clean up that mess as it was occurring. But don't eat meat that had been strangled previously. Eat kosher. That was part of it as a means of building a bridge with fellow believers, even though it was understood that those things were not salvific in nature. And the reason that that was understood is because of the greatest decree that came out of the Jerusalem Council. Acts 15 11, Peter said, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. We being Jews, they being Gentiles, everybody is saved by grace. You may have obedience unto sanctification, but the only obedience unto salvation is recognition of the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's it period. And all of that, all of it, is by grace. And this is the message that Timothy is taking with him wherever he goes, along with Paul at the beginning, from Lystra in Galatia to Berea and Athens and Corinth and Jerusalem and Rome. I don't know if you knew this, but Timothy even had a prison ministry. Of course, that is because Timothy became a prisoner, as indicated in Hebrews 13 but here, there, and everywhere. He was a preacher of the gospel of grace, including in his final ministry as the bishop of Ephesus. And that is where he would die, and he would not die of natural causes. Timothy was clubbed to death during a festival, I think it's pronounced Castagogian. And this was in worship to Diana. It was lewd and vile, and they were pushing through the streets and he went out into those streets and he denounced their wickedness and preached the gospel and they beat him to death for it. And so in life and in death, Timothy's mother was vindicated in naming him because Timothy means one who honors God. So all of that said, there is one primary piece of the puzzle that I've left out of how this minister was made until now, and that's Paul. Uh, Timothy would have met Paul for the first time in Lystra in Acts 14, probably converted under his ministry, as I said. But obviously, Paul's personal discipleship of him begins in Acts 16. And in order to understand the form of this and the nature of these two men's relationship, you need to understand how young Timothy actually is in Acts 16. He is between the ages, more than likely, on the young end of 18, and he is not older than 24 and that last point I know for a fact, reasonably speaking, because 15 years from now Paul is going to write First Timothy, and in First Timothy he will be still referring to Timothy as a young man, as in, let no man despise your youth, but be an example to the brethren. Now that was said in the context of Greek philosophy and Greek philosophers, which basically held to the notion that if you were still in your 30s, you were not worth listening to. Ergo, again, he could not have been over 24 because then in 15 years he would not still have been in his 30s and that wouldn't have made sense. And as an aside, I'm very happy to note that now having officially turned 40, we are evidently bona fide. And uh, (laughs) things that I say matter, so I apologize for all the stuff I said before, but now it's legit. At any rate, though, Timothy is very young so as astute observers of human nature, you may suppose that he would have quite naturally become something of a son to Paul and Paul something of a father to him. And if you did suppose this, you would be correct. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.2 To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. On a case if you're wondering You know, whether or not Paul was just given to referring to everybody that way, he wasn't. Yeah, he referred to his children in the faith generally with respect to even certain churches, but in this kind of a personal way, it is just Timothy and Onesimus that are referred to by him like this. This father-son relationship is especially good for Timothy in particular, because not only was his father an unbeliever, are thus incapable of giving him the most important kinds of instruction that a Christian man requires, but by the time of Acts 16, his earthly father was almost certainly dead, and we think that because typically you would expect to find the use in Greek of uh, past tense verb, and instead you find an imperfect tense verb, which would seem to indicate that he has gone and has that he is gone rather and has been gone. I want to pause on that for a second. And I want to ask, how good is God to have done this for this young man? And I suppose in order to understand the answer to that, you'd have to know something of how hard it is to become a godly man when you have no godly man to look to. When you have no primary representative of biblical masculinity whose time is given to you in a special way, There is a reason why God, who is spirit and has no body, represents himself as a father. It is because he is able to be understood through that relationship. So without that relationship, it makes understanding him much more difficult. And it makes understanding how you are to live for him much more difficult. What a great grace to Timothy. But Timothy is not the only one in this dynamic who's received a great grace. So has Paul. For example, consider perhaps the last words that Paul would ever write to anybody. 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 5. You, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Minister, young man, and minister well, because in the sequence of sacrifices, the drink offering was the final one, meaning Paul is about to meet his end at the edge of a Roman sword as a martyr. He goes on, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Make every effort, to come to me soon. For Amos, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. That would be the author of the work that we are going through right now. Pick up Mark and bring him with me, with you, for he is useful to me for service. And yes, that would be the same Mark that is John Mark that he has just refused to take with him. So the Lord has restored him. But Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak, which I left at Troas with Carpus. You may be asking yourself, why is it that a man who is dying in Mamertine prison in Rome and about to be put to death would ask for a coat? Well, that coat doubles as a blanket, and he is cold. More than likely, also ask for the books, especially the parchments. Verse 18 The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Twice there he asks him to come to make every effort to come to him. Paul is there on death's door. Now, I am not on death's door. I have never been in that situation, but I would imagine that for those who are, who you call upon when you are about to die, says a lot about the nature of the relationship that you have with that person. It seems quite evident to me as I read that passage that Timothy is being called upon to bring more than just earthly comforts Or more than just the scriptures which he is bringing to him. He has been called upon because he brings comfort. Himself, he is the comfort. Because he has become a son to Paul. In the same way that Paul has become a father to him. So back to that question what does it require to make a minister? Does it require a degree? No, it does not. One of the great errors of this age is to think that papers given out by institutions make ministers and not Christ, which is not to say that those things don't have their role. And I'll get to that in a bit, but this requires spiritual family, either consisting of biology and spirituality, as Lois and Eunice were a biological relation to him but also became his sisters in Christ when you're talking about Timothy. But certainly it requires a spiritual family if you don't have that. It requires also paternal love from men who are used by God to this end in the local church. For so long, we as American Christians have been corporatists, that we don't see the irony and the obvious error in removing a man from his local church and sending him to an institution that has no professors but only, or has no pastors rather, but only professors in order that he may become that which he is not seeing and is not being modeled to him. A shepherd, though he himself is not being shepherded. Leader of a church, having been taken out of the church. The good shepherd makes his under-shepherds And he uses other of his under-shepherds to shape these young ones to the kind of pastors that they must be. And yes, that requires incredible intellectual rigor and scholastic effort. And I emphasize this all the time. We are to be men of great learning, men of great study. Paul certainly uh, presses this issue with Timothy. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. And then the application of that truth requires a spine as well. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be, see, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Tell not that the classroom has no place or can't have a place there's something in a man and the majority of what he needs to be that is not going to be built in a classroom that can only be built in a church and that is christian holiness through institutional and personal discipleship 2nd timothy 2:20 20 through 26 paul stresses the quality that this man is to possess in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce corals. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. Able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That is the most important function that a man can serve on this earth. That is what a minister is, and institutions do not form them. Discipleship does. And I would say something here to you men in the congregation generally. I would say that you must understand that it is not just that this paternal love is used to form men who go into the ministry. It is necessary to form good Christian men, period. They all need this. We all need this. If you have not noticed, I place special emphasis upon men, and I always have, If you have not noticed, look around. There are more young men in this congregation than there typically are in evangelical churches in our day. They represent an outsized proportion. Now, that is the Lord's doing. The Lord has done that through a perspective that He gave to me of not having what it is that I am recommending now and commending to you. I know very well what it is to lack this and to go through life with a want of it. I have a mother like this mother and I had no one there and everything was a deconstruction, a reverse engineering, trying to pull as much as I could from the example of this man that I observed from afar and this man and piecing together what it is to be a good man. You, men of a certain age, You are to form a brotherhood of fathers. And you are to be that to the younger men in this congregation. And to you who have no believing sons, then here you may fulfill that role. And to you who have believing sons, here you may fill in that role more and more for the men who are already here, who are young. For example, I have excesses. I am geared a certain way. I am, as I've said, and I won't claim this in the good parts, but in the, in the sternness, I tend to track more towards the Apostle Paul's example. But as I said in the previous sermon, we don't just need Paul's, do we? We need Barnabas's as well. And so my son will look to you for that, and he is right to. And what you lack, I can help fill in. And all of us must come together to form these men, especially in an age like this where there is so much fatherlessness. Be that to them. They require it. And if you are here and you do not have the first and most important father yet as your father, then I tell you, young man, young woman, Turn to the Lord Jesus. Because no father on earth can be what he is. No father on earth can compare. It is through that example that we learn something of him. But the fullness of him belongs to him and him alone. He is a father that never fails unlike us. He is a father that can provide all that his children need unlike us. And if you have not known his love, then you have not known love at all because he is love. And in fact, it was the hand of that father that was guiding Timothy from before he even exited the womb, guiding the hearts of his grandmother, his mother, all the people that poured into him and ultimately to the apostle Paul. What love, what care. And it will be yours if you will turn in faith and repentance to the Lord Jesus today. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of this young man who became an old man, martyred under the reign of Domitian. One of the great ministers of the Christian faith ever. We thank you that you don't require perfect men to be fathers because you supplied a perfect man. And we thank you that we get to point to him. And Lord, we thank you for our mothers. We thank you for all that they do for us, for the foundation that they lay. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them to continue to point their children to your son, knowing that that is their first and primary responsibility in this life with respect to the rearing of their children. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Illyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.ChristRockChurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify and Stitcher. I along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.